Hello and welcome to a special episode of Spectator Radio. I'm Kate Andrews, the Spectator's Economics Editor, and I'll be your host for the next half hour. The UK has recently lifted almost every COVID restriction, and with that, thousands of commuters will return to their offices. Will those memories of delays, cancellations, costly tickets, and overcrowding come back to haunt the commuter? Most of these problems are linked to the patchwork of Victorian infrastructure that has struggled to meet the demands of the modern-day passenger. While grandstanding projects like HS2 dominate the headlines, is that the kind of investment that's best spent for the consumer? And with other issues on the horizon, such as extreme weather conditions, inflation, and flexible working patterns, how will the industry prepare itself? To get to the bottom of this, I'd first like to look back in time at the history of the British railway system, where Britain was the pioneer in the Industrial Revolution. Our guest, Christian Wolmar, is a writer, historian, and broadcaster specializing in transport. Christian, tell us about the dawn of railways in Britain. The first modern railroad was opened between Liverpool and Manchester in 1830. It must have been quite an exciting time. Uh, Rails, which were used to take coal out of the mines, and then they developed the idea of actually pushing them down the hill towards the nearest river and then pulling them up again with the help of horses. And by the mid-18th century, there was a whole network of wagonways across largely the northeast, but also in other places, the Midlands, a bit the northwest and so on. And then you get the other important development that goes into the creation of railways, which, of course, is the steam engine. So we get Newcomen, who was really the pioneer, he was a Cornishman, but then you get James Watt kind of simplifying it and kind of making it more viable. And then you get the idea, first put out by a guy called Trescothic, but eventually really by Stevenson, George Stevenson, the, the father of the railways in many respects, who puts a steam engine on rails with wheels that then moves, right? And then you get the idea of it then towing wagons and then carriages. And you get, first of all, the Stockton and Darlington Railway, 1825, which was the first passenger railway that actually carried people, although by steam, but largely it was still a horse-drawn railway. And then you get Liverpool and Manchester. As you say, that is really the dawn of the railway age because it's a twin-track railway entirely powered by steam, carrying both goods and people and in both directions. So you get the raw cotton from Liverpool, processed in Manchester, and you get the finished goods coming back. And that leads to an absolutely massive growth in the system. So that by 1850, just picture this, by 1850, you have 5,000 miles of railway in in Britain, just from nothing to 5,000 miles in 20 years. And so that was an exciting time. I'd love to have been there. So British steam technology was world-leading, but As you hint to there, Christian, there is a real sense of nostalgia for what the British rails were like. They were more than just a mode of transport. They were a signifier of British identity, and people really cared about their influence abroad. Oh, absolutely. The early railways in many other countries, including the United States, was based on this technology. But soon, lots of countries kind of got the ideas and and developed their own steam engines, and started running tracks around their countries, so much so that it was really what I see as the catalyst for capitalist development around the world. Because just think of it, before the railways, 
nobody could move very fast. You know, 10 miles an hour was about the best. London to York would take two or three days in a stagecoach and be very uncomfortable. Suddenly, London to York became seven, eight, ten, maybe eight, ten hours at that time, but absolutely far faster than you could before. And that enormous advantage in speed basically catapulted industrial development. It it kind of meant that so much more was possible, not just in terms of raw goods being moved, but also finished goods being moved. So, you know, people in the the countryside of Great Britain could order goods from a department store and they'd come by rail in the next couple of days and so on. So it's impossible to really overestimate the importance of the railways in that kind of 100 years or 80 years between the development of the automobile and the creation of the railways. So that period between about 1830 and 1910, the railways ruled the world. I don't think many people today would think of the British railways as world leading. Is post-war when Europe was rebuilding its rail, but the UK didn't, when Britain started to fall behind? We probably started falling behind a little bit between the wars initially because we were obsessed with steam engines. Other countries were already looking at fast diesels, particularly the United States had some wonderful diesel trains between the wars. And definitely, as you suggest, post-war, we were slow to improve the railways and we stuck with steam engines too long and we didn't invest in the technology. It was a period, times of austerity, very difficult to find the finance to do it. Cars were allowed to really develop without much competition from the railways. That was kind of worldwide, but we suffered particularly badly from that because we're a relatively small country and therefore kind of driving around became very feasible. And we lost out by not developing a network fast enough. We did recoup to some extent with the advent of Intercity, which was a a famous brand that existed from the 1970s onwards for long-distance travel. And that was highly popular, very well publicised, but we didn't go down the route that the French and the Italians and various other countries have of high-speed rail. And that might be seen as a mistake given that we kind of missed out on that technology and now we're now having to catch up on it. Thank you for that brief history lesson, Christian. Now I would also like to bring in the rest of our guests. Caroline Donaldson is the Managing Director of West Coast Partnership Development and joining Caroline and Christian is Wendy Morton, the Rail Minister at the Department for Transport. Now, Caroline, can you start by explaining how rail ownership works today? Because companies like yours, though you provide the trains, you aren't looking after the rail network, are you? No, that's correct. We uh, network rail look after the rail infrastructure. Companies like ours run the train operations. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that means that we look after all of the, the leases for the rolling stock. We lease the stations and we pay a usage charge for the railway. But actually our key focus because of that is on the customer's. So actually our key role is to make sure that the services we're providing meet what the customer needs and wants and that you know we deliver all of the ancillaries around that. So making sure that they can buy tickets easily, that they get the right catering on board the train, that they can interface with other modes of transport, for example. And Network Rail, which is essentially looking after the tracks to simplify it, that is a state institution that's government owned. Yes, that's, that's yes. correct. And Christian... Does that mixed system cause problems? When things go wrong, it seems like it might be easier to pass the buck. Well, historically, railways have been integrated. In other words, that the 
companies providing the operations have also been in charge of the track. And now this changed at privatisation nearly 30 years ago, where quite oddly in terms of railway history, the track was separated from the operations. And this has undoubtedly caused problems. There's a lot of contractual relationships that need to be sorted out between the operators and Network Rail. There's often some communication breakdown between the two. This has improved in the kind of nearly 30 years that it's been functioning in this way, but it does raise some issues about what is the best way to run a railway. And what about those issues, Wendy? There was this proposal for the Great British Railways. Tell us about that proposal and what is it currently looking at? Great British Railways, or GBR, is about bringing track and trains closer together. It's about making it simpler as well for for passengers. So there's a huge amount of work going on in the Department for Transport. There'll be legislation that will come forward as well. But it's about also making sure that that piece around simplification for passengers putting passengers at the heart of the railways is is really, really important. I mean, we've seen over the years the investment that has come into the railways and through, including through the private sector as well. But railways, we know, have been around for a long time. They need to continue to evolve and and move forward. Mm. Caroline, from what you've seen so far from the Great British Railways proposal, would it resolve any of the major problems that you think your customers are complaining about or facing at the moment? Yeah, I think there are certainly a number of really positive proposals in in what the GBR objectives will be. I think in particular, certainly things around ticketing. We know that ticketing is far too complex for customers at the moment and they haven't got full trust in the system. And I think as well as giving people a better transparency of the ticket they're buying, we'll see more people travelling as a result of that, for example. We'll also see some of the inefficiencies that are in the current system where there might be duplication of effort and those sorts of things will be ironed out. And I think you know, the franchising system that we've had, as Christian referred to it, for the last 30 years has delivered an awful lot and delivered good savings and good performance for the customer. But I think we all recognise it's reached its time and it's time for a new way forward, a new way to engage the private sector as we are at the moment, but making sure that we're making the best use of the the private sector to deliver what it's good at and that we use the government bodies to deliver what they're good at and take some of the big risks that are in the system. Christian, the idea in principle of more people travelling by rail as opposed to, say, in a personal car or on a plane sounds great for lots of reasons, not including the government's net zero agenda. But is there capacity to actually do that? There's real concern at the moment that we're already far over capacity when it comes to the rail network. Do you think the proposals on the table right now are actually going to solve those kinds of issues? Uh, well, actually, there's plenty of capacity on the railways because, of course, they're still at around 60% of pre-COVID levels. Some routes are kind of busier than that, but crucially, the peak times are well below what they were before. And that gives a great opportunity for the railways because there is a a chance of kind of recycling this spare capacity and trying to attract more people onto the railways off-peak, providing better services off-peak. And indeed, that's what people want. If you're kind of able to work from home part of the week you'll probably do so and then probably when you go into work you don't want to travel at eight o'clock in the morning you might do a bit of work at home and then you'll travel at 10 o'clock so there is a great opportunity here it's whether it will be taken or not is a big question because at the moment there's more people using their cars or about 100 percent of pre-covid levels so can you attract those people off and 
actually some of the things that are happening are probably going to deter people, like the 4.8% rise in fares that we're going to have in March. Mm. Wendy, privatisation versus nationalisation is a debate that often rears its head in the UK. The last election saw Jeremy Corbyn run on a platform of renationalising the railways. Do you think that some of the problems that still haven't been tackled could be solved with some element of nationalisation? I mean, the GBR is about as I said earlier, simplification. It's not about renationalisation. We've seen the benefits that franchising has brought over the years, the way that the private sector has played a part, and it's about harnessing that and continuing to move it forward. Because, as we've said, the railways are evolving all of the time. People are using the railways differently now than they were a couple of years ago, and it's important that we recognise that. So that's why I think the GBR, it's really exciting. There's Okay, everything brings challenges, but there are some huge opportunities that will come now with with GBR. Mm, Christian? There is a fundamental problem with GBR, which is this, which, as you pointed out earlier, Network Rail is owned by the state and the train companies are private. Now, what's happened after the pandemic is that the train companies have been sort of semi-taken in into the state because they no longer take the risk over fares. The fares are now entirely going to government because, of course, the fares income was reduced to something like 10% initially and still is running at kind of only 60%. And therefore, the private companies could not take that risk. Now, how do you, and this is the dilemma for, for GBR, how do you kind of then incentivize the private sector by letting them take some risk and yet kind of safeguarding the railways in such a way that if there is another pandemic or another downturn in the economy, the railway doesn't go bust. And that's the fundamental dilemma. So the logic might well be to just say nationalise it, but the imperative of a conservative government is unlikely to be nationalisation. So there's a bit of a dilemma and we don't really know how the structure of GBR will look like after the legislation. Wendy? Yeah, I just want to come back on this point about the last couple of years and, and what the government has been doing and nationalisation versus privatisation. You know, I, this is about simplification. This is not about nationalisation. But in the last couple of years, I think it's really worth recognising that the government has put, you know, in excess of £14 billion into the railways to support our railways, to keep them going. That is about, you know, keeping a network so that passengers could get to work, key frontline workers. And that has been absolutely the right the right thing to do in the last couple of years. One would hope, Caroline, that we would not be basing our future rail policy based off pandemic years. But in terms of the money that's continuing to go to rails, there's going to be a £9 billion influx of cash over the next few years in order to update the system. That can grind with taxpayers who aren't taking rail. The people in the top earnings quintile are five times more likely to be using trains than those in the lowest. So actually, isn't there an argument that really we should be taking more state money out of this and we should be using more private sector money and maybe even hiking rail fares given who actually benefits from using those trains? Well I think certainly as, as we've heard from other speakers we've got to get the balance right here. You know, we need to recognise that transport is a key element of our infrastructure and it's an element of the way that we deliver economic benefit to society so people need to travel for their jobs to make business appointments and actually a lot of people travel for leisure and, and that in itself feeds back into the economy so I think we need to see that there's a lot wider benefit than just the individuals who are travelling on the train services. 
Wendy? Yeah, just on, on following on that point, this is very much about fairness. It's about fairness for the passengers. It's also about fairness for the taxpayer. Recognising people commute, but it's not everybody that uses the railways across the country. Recognising the support that government put in during the pandemic, that £14 billion, but also recognising the role that the railways play going forward around the decarbonisation agenda, be that in terms of passengers or indeed freight, getting traffic off our roads and onto alternative modes of transport. Christian? Yes, I think that's why it's always a mistake to look at the railways as a conventional business, because they're not. Because they generate what the economists call externalities. In other words, even people who don't use the railways benefit from them. You only have to think of what a traffic problem London would be if everybody tried to drive in to work. And Therefore, you can't capture that value for the fare box. So it's all very well saying, oh, yes, kind of more affluent people tend to use the railways. That is true. But by doing so, they are benefiting society as a whole, not, not just in, even in the direct way of kind of reducing carbon emissions or the like, but they're creating the economic conditions that enable employment and all sorts of other beneficial aspects. You know, just try and have a, a leisure venue, for example, that isn't near transport. You know, the O2 is very successful precisely because it's on top of a railway station. Well, let me ask anybody who wants to come in here, if we are going to think outside the box post-COVID and really talk about transforming the railway system, what about looking internationally to a system like Japan, which is often internationally praised, where instead of parceling trains out to private companies and the rail out to government, they split based on regions and sell the trains and the tracks of that particular place to a particular company and things that aren't profitable end up falling under the state. I mean, is it time to really reconsider policy, not tinker, but overhaul and look to countries that might be getting it correct? Well, I I think if you look at some of the principles that are going into the new GBR setup, then actually some of those things have been looked at very carefully. And there was a lot of work went into the announcement. So, you know, for example, GBR recognises that there may be a different model that's required for long distance, more commercial services, as you said, the profit making services, than is required for perhaps the shorter distance commuter services or those that provide more of a public support service. So I think that some of the things that that GBR is looking to do, and of course some of that detail is yet to be worked through, is very much built on the principles that we don't need a one-size-fits-all solution for this industry or for its customers. Wendy, are we going to turn our rail services into Japan's? Yeah, British Railways have been here for a long time. I'm sure they'll be here for a long, t- a long time in the future. But it is about building and maintaining railways that are sustainable, that are resilient into the future. But on that piece of almost learning from what other countries do, obviously we do look at what other countries are, are doing. So I think that's all part and parcel of, of, of developing policy, but also looking at what it is that we, we want and we need here in the UK. And recognising that, you know, there are the connections to jobs. There's also the leisure travel industry, which are very, very different, different industries. But there's a whole raft of people who use our railways and have done for, for many, many years. Mm, Christian? Funnily enough, the model you just suggested was actually the one that John Major favoured when the railways were privatised in the, the 90s. And he was overruled by the Treasury, which was obsessed with the idea of introducing on-rail competition into the network and that hasn't really kind of worked at all 
And also at the time, British Rail had a very workable structure, which was it had, and I've just written a book about British Rail, due to come out in June, which uh, Listeners was, take was actually quite successful, which it had intercity on the longer routes, it had network south-east on the commuter routes around London, and then it had the big loss-making bits called regional railways. And this was very effective, and indeed two out of three, those apart from regional railways, actually made a profit or broke even. And one of the ways that it could have been privatised would have been to structure it like that. But I don't think that GBI is going to go down something quite as, as radical as that. But maybe it's going to look at those sort of ideas, either the Japanese model or the old BR model. Well, for the rest of the podcast, I want to turn to infrastructure a bit, because, Caroline, the cost of weather-related delays has doubled in the 10 years leading up to 2020. It costs about £100 million, I think. So presumably part of the issue here is the age of the British railways. What do you think is needed in terms of investment and where should that money be coming from? I think there are two big factors here, aren't there? One is that we have this railway, which was fundamentally a Victorian railway, and it's great to be first mover, isn't it? But you suffer from that. But actually, as Wendy said, the government has put an enormous amount through network rail into making the infrastructure much more reliable. But of course, what we're also seeing is much more severe weather events. And I think the industry has actually continued to deal with those. And actually, overall, per incident, actually, the industry is doing very well. But we need to continue making sure that the infrastructure is fit for purpose. And of course, the other thing the government's doing is investing huge sums of money in the new high speed two infrastructure, which will benefit initially, you know, the the whole of the West Coast main line and also further east. And actually building that to withstand, you know, the, the kind of weather that we see currently is also critically important. And not only will high speed to benefit the, the high speed services, it will actually reduce delays across the network as a whole. So I think there's an enormous amount of investment going in, but it's a matter of value for money and it's got to be both for the passenger and the taxpayer. We need to get that balance right. On that point about value for money, Wendy, not everybody is as excited about HS2. The price has now estimated to have spiralled up to being over £100 billion is quite jarring. And of course, it's not coming online for years. And under the integrated rail plan, HS2 is losing that eastern leg to Leeds, which has prompted criticism that the government perhaps isn't as serious about levelling up if it is going to invest in this huge infrastructure project. It's cutting off the bits that perhaps could help those who want to stimulate their region the most. What do you say to those critics? I think you've missed a bit of the jigsaw out here, the bigger, the bigger picture. So in ter- firstly, in terms of, of HS2, that's probably the biggest rail project, rail programme since Victorian times north of London. Massive project, which obviously takes some time to, to complete. But alongside that, we announced a massive £96 billion in terms of the integrated rail plan. And this is about investment in infrastructure in the north and in the Midlands. But starting to bring forward improvements that now, whereas HS2 takes some time to deliver from A to B, the integrated rail plan will be delivering benefits across the North and the Midlands much, much quicker. So therefore, I, you know, I say to people, there's two examples of investment that the government is putting into the, the railways. In addition to that, we're investing in throughout Restoring Your Railways programme, which is bringing back some of the old beaching lines. The Dartmoor line has already 
opened ahead of the time scale and certainly on on budget we're also investing in our access for all program which is about making stations disability accessible if you have to recognize that a lot of stations have been around for a long time before disabled access was was part of those plans so we're investing heavily into into that as well Caroline, tens of billions of pounds here, tens of billions of pounds there. Sooner or later, we might start talking real money. West Coast Partnership is the shadow operator for HS2. It will be. How can we be sure that this huge investment into this new rail line is not going to be plagued by the same problems for customers that we've been talking about throughout this podcast? Well, I think that's part of the role that that we have is that High Speed 2 Limited are building the infrastructure, but we're there to focus on the customer and on the journey. And of course, our customers don't just travel on a piece of infrastructure. They travel from their homes to go and visit football matches, businesses, go to work, whatever. So actually, we're focused on making sure that that end-to-end journey works fully, whether it's as part of the wider network, the rail network, or part of the wider transport network. And some of the work that we're doing there is looking very carefully, for example, at what the future demand looks like. I mean, even without the pandemic, trends change, and we need to look at how that's going. We need to look at how trends are working with competition. So it's really important for that modal shift from cars and from aircraft onto the railway, which is going to be much more environmentally friendly, much greener, that we get those things right, both in terms of where the services go and how frequently, uh, but also the offer. And as Wendy said, you know, we've got to make sure that that offer appeals to all of the potential customers that we could have so that the price is right, the onboard offer is right. And, and critically, as I said, that we get those links, you know, from where they're coming from, from their homes or, or to their football ground or wherever, you know, right. Christian, what do you make of HS2? Well, I've never been a great fan of HS2. In fact, I've written critically about it for the last 10 years. And I'm delighted that the government has reined back on the eastern leg. And I think people might be surprised to hear me say this, but I think the IRP is actually, the integrated rail plan, is actually a much more coherent idea than HS2. And I I think that, as Wendy said, delivering some benefits earlier, there's some actually good aspects to it. My problem with all this is that although there is quite a lot of what the business people call capex going into the railways, and, and that seems to be continuing, there's a real worry of the opex, which is the operating expenditure. And you know we are seeing a big squeeze on the train operators. They've been told to make 10% cuts. There's kind of questions about whether the pre-pandemic timetables will be restored now that more people are using the railways and so on. So what I don't want to see is a real lack of joined up thinking so that we spend a lot of money on new infrastructure and the like, but the train companies or GBR, whoever it is, can't afford to run services on this shiny new infrastructure. And I think that is, is probably top of Wendy's agenda and kind of quite an issue for the rail industry generally. Final question to all of you. What do you think is going to be the biggest obstacle to delivering an efficient and value-for-money service over the coming years on the railways? And what do we need to anticipate, especially with the pandemic and the way that that has changed behavior, has changed travel, in order to make this the best customer experience possible? Caroline. Well, I think we all know that that investment needs a certain degree of certainty. And I think with the pandemic, what we don't know yet is how the demand patterns are going to build back. So we need to be right on top of that. There is a a chance that, that certain aspects 
of the travel will come down. But actually, there is also an enormous opportunity. We've seen leisure has come back straight away. Christian referred to it earlier, but actually, if we don't have some of those peaks that were caused by commuter travel, which was actually quite inefficient to provide, then actually we can use our money more wisely. But what we've got to keep on top of is making sure that we're focusing on what the customer needs and what's going to give the best bang for our buck, basically. Wendy? I mean, Caroline talks a lot, and rightly so, about customers here and about passengers. The last couple of years, we've seen passenger numbers change. We need to continually keep that under review and look at being as flexible and adaptable as as possible, but also recognising the investment that I've referred to, the the £96 billion in, in the IRP, the investment through Access for All, restoring your railways. But alongside that, we've got an ambitious reform piece to do as well, the plan for rail, which is around ticketing. So I actually think there's some really great opportunities moving forward. It's now about getting on and delivering them. Christian? I'm going to give a slightly nerdy answer here, which is I think that what we have to do is create the right structure with a quite independent Great British Railways that hasn't got the Treasury breathing down its neck the whole time. And that in particular relates to fares. At the best times of British Rail, which is in its final 10 years, had a real policy of kind of managing to operate commercially as well as recognise its social kind of needs, the social needs of of people. And that has to be found again in in GBL. They have to rediscover how to do that. And that requires giving GBR quite a lot of commercial freedom using state money because that's where essentially the railways are funded by the state in terms of investment whilst also avoiding the treasury making very kind of restrictive decisions about what it's allowed to do and that's already happened with the new flexible fares which have turned out to be something of a damp squib because the treasury insisted on certain structures and patterns that were not really particularly helpful to people using including grant shapps actually who probably got a bad deal out of his on his own season ticket so what we need is a, a gbr with both commercial freedom but ensure that they pay heed to both their commercial and social requirements. Well, I know I said final question, but listeners, it's actually going to be a final debate because Wendy would like to come back and respond to a few points there. I can't, I, sorry, Christian, but I can't, I can't resist coming back and just saying, actually, during the pandemic, the introduction of the flexi fare, the flexi ticketing has been really welcome because it has made a difference, particularly to those commuters who are readjusting their their work and travel plans and coming into into the office just for you know for example a couple of days a week well that's all the time we have caroline wendy and christian thanks very much for joining me